Good evening and a warm welcome to the students, staff, and our friends in the community that are here to uh, hear our speaker of the evening, Luke Johnson, in our public speaker series. I'm Dr. Linda Hickman, and I'm from the Department of Management, who are very pleased to be sponsors for this evening. We have within our Department of Management an entrepreneurial course, and across the campus, increasingly, we have many students who are interested in entrepreneurship and go for activities such as the Entrepreneur Society or are active in the Pitch It contest that the Careers Office uh, sponsors each year. Now, LSE has a very prestigious public events program. We've had Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, Angela Merkel, many speakers. And the tradition at LSE is to host leaders in business and politics that present their views. Often, they may be controversial. And they are people that we want to hear their own personal views. Tonight, we welcome Luke Johnson, a passionate believer in the role of entrepreneurship in economic development and growth. He challenges critics of business, especially in times like this, which are considered to be very precarious times. Perhaps some of you read his column in last week's FT. And he spoke about comments that have been made at the Labor Party. Well, this is one of the areas where business can start to be interesting and sometimes controversial. But Luke very much speaks from his very vast business experience. His career spans many types of endeavors, and I think that's one of the very unique characteristics Luke brings. We often talk about serial entrepreneurs, but his experience is very broad. You most likely have been either a customer or a consumer of, of one of his business startups. Have you ever eaten at Pizza Express or Strata or Giraffe or Patisserie Valerie? Well, that's just part of his empire. Another part is, have you ever watched Channel 4? where he was chairman for six years. And in addition to that, perhaps you've read some of his columns in the Financial Times and other magazines. Currently, Luke is chairman of Risk Capital Partners and also chairman of the Royal Society of Arts. Very recently, he published a book, and it was entitled Start It Up. The subtitle is perhaps more important. Why running your own business is easier than you think. And also the subtitle under his author's name. A how-to book from someone who has. That was the publisher's idea. Well, that was going to be one of my final lines to say what better recommendation than to hear from someone who has succeeded. So tonight, I want to welcome Luke Johnson. He's going to talk about 
new firms and their founders and how they create jobs and wealth. And very importantly, as we think of the economic background, what we can do to stimulate an enterprise economy in Britain. Before Luke comes, I just wanted to add one other comment about our schedule of how we're going to do this tonight. And Luke will speak for 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll have question and answer time. So be thinking of your questions uh, at this point in time. There'll be uh, people with microphones dotted around for you. And after the question and answer time, we will also have some time for book signing. So I saw that there were some books out there, and I hope some of you will be joining us for that. So I want to thank Luke very much from the behalf of LSE as well as the Department of Management for giving us his time tonight. Evening. Um, <clears throat> I, I gave a brief talk to a few students just earlier. I may repeat myself, forgive me. Um, I started in business at the age of 18. I was at university studying medicine to become a doctor at Oxford. And um, I, like most students at that age, my principal interests were not studying but meeting girls. And uh, in pursuance of that aim, I, I held a lot of parties with a friend of mine called Hugh Osmond, who's now a very successful businessman. And um, our parties got out of control, and the dean of discipline there said he'd uh, send me down if I carried on. And so I came up with the idea of using a local nightclub instead of my rooms to host the parties. And my friend Hugh came up with the idea of charging on the door. And so our parties went from being parties to become a business. And a turning point in my life came on the first night we were open, when uh, I arrived 20 minutes, 20 to 8, before we were due to start. And there was already a queue of people. And I realized in that split second, here was a whole lot of strangers who had believed in an idea we had had enough to spend money and join in. And I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. Rather than treat the sick, I'm going to be someone who builds businesses. And so that's really what I've been doing for the last 25 years or so, uh, with a few brief interruptions. Um, and I have to say that despite the setbacks and the pitfalls and the mistakes and the cock-ups, uh, it's pretty a great journey. So I am biased. Um, immediately after uni leaving university, I carried on with my little adventures in the evenings and weekends and uh, holidays. Uh, a small business, I had a little software company and uh, more nightclub businesses and then some tatty old pubs. But my day job was working in a bank. Um, and I think I was in denial because I thought that, um, you know, a safe job and a good salary was what it's about. But um, I guess in my mid-twenties, the sort of period of denial ended. I got fired and I thought, right, no more excuses. So um, <clears throat> that is when I made the great leap. Um, and uh, I've sort of not looked back since in the sense that I've never for a split second really wanted to go and work for someone else again um, because I think it isn't for most entrepreneurs that I've known about the money. It's about the freedom and the independence. It's about controlling your own destiny to an extent. And it's about not having to deal with the bureaucracy and office politics that characterize so many large organizations today. And you know, an awful lot of people, particularly the sort of people in this room, if uh, they're working for an organization or an institution, it's going to be a big one. And so there will be a lot of that rigmarole which 
you can avoid. And you get to take the credit if you work for yourself. Uh, and I think that's really important. And uh, I've for years studied the motivations and uh, psychology of entrepreneurs. And, you know, a lot of them it is about things like creativity, about trying to change the world. It's about um, doing your own thing rather than following orders, rather than um, trying to become very rich. And indeed, a lot of people who work for themselves don't necessarily make as much money as they could by being an employee. And they certainly don't necessarily have the at least the illusion of security. But the fact is, they love the freedom. And I think that's really important. Um, <clears throat> so in my 20s, uh, I, I pursued various ventures. My timing in becoming full-time self-employed was not good in that um, it was 1989 and the recession was just about to start. So um, it was hard going and for probably three years I don't think I earned any money um, and I lived off an increasing overdraft. Um, but somehow or other I made ends meet. I was lucky because uh, I had no dependents so um, I had nothing to lose in a sense. Um, and I think for those of you here who, for example, might be considering starting a business, in some ways, it, you know, when you're young or indeed when you're quite a lot older, those are the easiest times because you don't have all those responsibilities of being a provider weighing on you. Um, and uh, you know, my various ventures included um, a business restoring classic cars, and I was involved with a company that bought share registers and sold them to uh, people who wanted to do direct marketing um, and various other projects. I think I can honestly say they were all flops. And one of the things I learned in this period that, um, you know, y you can have failures. And that indeed virtually every entrepreneur you would ever meet, I will argue, will have had their own mishaps and disasters. And um, <coughs> you see in surveys that people who uh, are uh, considering starting their own business but afraid, the big thing that puts them off is the idea of um, uh, it going wrong. Well, believe me, it will. And no business plan I've ever seen has the business worked according to the model as set out before it started. Um, it's inevitable that there will be mistakes and um, problems. And that's the very nature of um, human existence in a way. But Overcoming those and the per perseverance to do so is what, you know, separates the winners far more than having the, you know, blinding flash of insight in the beginning. It's about do you have the stamina to carry on when things are tough? And it's, you know, it's the defining characteristic, I think, of successful entrepreneurs that they have persistence on their side. Um, Another great turning point for me in my life was um, at the age of 29, in 1992, um, with partners, I managed to obtain control of Pizza Express. At the time, it was quite a small business. We had 12 uh, owned company restaurants and a couple of dozen franchise branches. And in that year, 92, the business had gone into loss for the first time. So the founding partners had fallen out, as they often do when things go wrong. And um, this gave us the chance to take control of the business. I'd been stalking it for two years. Even though I had no money, um, I knew the business might come up for sale. Previously in 1990, I had answered a little classified ad in the FT um, that had been placed by a franchisee of the business who was very concerned about its future and ownership. And um, I'd kept in touch with him regularly over the two years. And so I'd been 
tracking what the business was doing. And I realised even then that it was a magnificent formula, very simple, very profitable, very high margin, very underexploited. And in a way, you know, when we took control of it in '92, we barely had to change anything except give it the dynamism to go for it in terms of new openings and expand outside of its homeland of London and Soho. And um, we were incredibly fortunate because the recession was ending in early 93, and so demand for eating out was increasing. And we were involved in a virtuous circle. Sites were available, we had a good team, we had the funding, and demand was rising. And um, the success was quite extraordinary, and it's one of the very few businesses I've ever been involved with where I think it beat its budget every single year I, w I, was, I was there. Got, uh, what I'd give for uh, the other businesses I've been involved with to do the same. Uh, and I think I was also incredibly fortunate in that, you know, there are actually very, very few great businesses out there, and I think Pizza Express is one. And to stumble across early-ish in your career a great business and to somehow or other manage to get control of it, it's a great stroke of luck. Uh, I can count on less than two hands the other great businesses I've been involved with in my career over the last quarter of a century or so. Um, following building up Pizza Express through the 90s, when we took it from a dozen to about 200-odd branches, um, I'd sold my shares far too early, sadly, but you know, still profitably. And um, I stepped back and I started all over again, and we uh, created a new pizza brand called Strada. And uh, the idea there was to do wood-fired pizza and higher quality ingredients and a more extensive menu, grills and roasts and things, and, um, you know, take Pizza Express head on. Obviously, we had to be more competitively priced because they were the market leader. They weren't the market leader when we first took control of the business in 92. In 92, we had two other businesses that were much bigger than us called Pizza Land and Deep Pan Pizza, and they both went bust in the 90s, all shut down. Very interesting, whereas Pizza Express only continued to grow. And with Strada, our first opening in Battersea, south of the river, didn't work. And it was only because we had signed two further leases, because we were being very bullish, that we carried on. And I think if we hadn't have signed those extra leases, we may never have grown the business. Anyhow, the second and third branches did work, and I think the chain now has about 75 branches. I no longer own it because I sold it. But um, again, I think luck and timing play huge parts in the success of that story. Uh, at about the same time, I was flicking through the yellow pages. You remember those? And um, uh, I was looking for what I thought would be a fragmented sector that showed growth. And I came across dentists, and I thought, you know what, I know lots of dentists that drive Rolls Royces. It must be a good business. And I had this sort of vague healthcare background, having done an undergraduate degree in medicine. So um, I sort of got a list of dentists together, and I, I, I wrote to a few of them. This is pre-email, of course. And one of them responded from Liverpool, and um, he said he had a chain of four uh, dental practices. And so I went to meet him, and uh, it was a very positive journey, and then he, uh, a meeting, and then he said, oh, and by the way, I'm emigrating to Israel, so I can't go into business with you. So that was a shame, so I gave up. <laughs> and then two years later... He called me from Liverpool and he said, I hated Israel, I've come back. And I now want to do the idea that you talked about. I said, well, I'm bored of that now, I'm not really interested. Anyhow, he called me once a fortnight for about 
two months. And eventually I thought, this bloke is really persistent. There's something about him. So I went into business with him. And together we built up Integrated Dental Holdings. And um, <clears throat> it, it, it more or less immediately became the largest chain of uh, dental surgeries in the country. Um, and we had a long journey. I was involved for over 10 years. We raised venture capital. We took it public. We took it private. Anyhow, ultimately, it was a very successful uh, uh, involvement. Um, the business, I think, at the beginning of this year had another transaction I sold out a couple of years ago, uh, valuing it at over £500 million. Um, and uh, that was a rather extraordinary experience, I must say. Another experience that happened not that long afterwards, uh, <clears throat> someone mentioned to me a chap they met in the pub who uh, had fallen out with his partners in a retail business called Topps Tiles. Um, and it emerged there were three partners and they were all arguing and they decided to sell the business. So uh, I talked to them and uh, I liked two of them and one of them, the third one, he really wanted out. He'd fallen out with the other two. So I said to the two I liked, I said, why don't you, Stuart and Barry, I said, why don't you remain involved and I'll buy him out. So that's what I did. And at the time, I think it had 14 shops and they were fairly down market shops selling floor and wall tiles. And the thing one felt was that we don't use many wall and floor tiles in this country. We use a lot of carpet, even in our bathrooms. And I thought, you know, this is not very hygienic and a bad idea. And um, people surely will be using more tiles. And the thing about tiles is no one knows what they should cost. I show you a white tile, you know, it costs 50p or 10 pounds. You couldn't tell me. It's one of the reasons why I don't think the online threat is so big with four or more tiles. Anyhow, uh, I became the third largest shareholder in that and went on the board and um, within a year the business had performed so well we were going to take it public and uh, my colleagues chose a stockbroker against my advice and the stockbroker couldn't raise all the money so one of, another great stroke of luck in my life I had to put loads more money in on the flotation which I'd just taken out of Pizza Express I had to immediately put it in the top styles because uh, we hadn't raised the minimum that we promised and I was hoping to sell shares in the flotation instead of selling them I had to buy them Anyhow, the shares for the 10 years following the flotation were the single most successful share of any kind on the London Stock Exchange. I forget how much they multiplied, but it was extraordinary. Sadly, of course, I'd sold far too early, but I did all right. <laughs> anyhow, still in my life. Um, this is getting boring. So, um, I, I have to say you are an experiment, because I've never actually given a speech before without a script, so bear with me. Um, normally I just, you know, read careful lines. Um, in recent years I've gone back into the restaurant business in a big way. I've uh, got involved with a business called Giraffe, which we, uh, we invested in when it had five branches and it now has about 50. Our most successful opening of all time happened two weeks ago at Stratford, uh, the new Westfield Centre, extraordinary. Um, I took control five years ago of a business called Patisserie Valerie, at the time it had six branches and was losing money and um, some accountants did a report for me and showed that it would lose money forever and I still went ahead and bought it um, and this year we just closed off September's numbers first year's trading it's um, made eight million profits and we now have over 80 branches. I just opened a new one in Hove on Saturday um, <clears throat> now there have been failures so let's not fool ourselves business is about failure as well as success I mentioned. 
about three years ago, four years ago maybe, uh, hubris, I thought I could sort of fix the uh, book trade. So um, I, I uh, saw that uh, there was a bargain going, I thought, of Borders, which was the UK arm of the US book chain. Um, and I thought it was a turnaround. I, I paid cents on the dollar in terms of net assets and uh, you know, a fraction of turnover I paid for the business. I paid the prof you know, less than the profit it had made two years prior. What I didn't realize was that there are very profound structural changes going on in the way books are being sold and that with Amazon and the supermarkets and now even more perhaps e-books, um, I fear, tragically, that the traditional bookstore is quite doomed. Anyhow, as far as I was concerned, that was a very unfortunate and painful experience. Um, but I guess it taught you that, or taught me anyhow, that um, you know, you can't change the tide of history if technology and behaviour is changing so dramatically, even if it looks like the bargain of all time. And uh, more recently, I've got heavily involved in artisan bread, and earlier this year, I became uh, majority owner of a business called Bread Limited, uh, which owns a brand you may have heard of called Gales. You can buy their bread in um, Waitrose or Cardo, but we also have a chain of stores around London, and we run the largest wholesale artisan bakery in Hendon with about 30, 300 or so uh, bakers handcrafting bread, which we sp supply most of the best hotels and restaurants and contract caterers in London. Um, so those are some of the main involvements I've had, just to give you some context. Um, some of the principles that I've uh, learned, I suppose, if you can call it that. One of the earlier ones was that I chose to work with partners, and I've continued to do that ever since. And uh, I believe that if you are thinking about a startup, then think carefully about the idea of taking someone on. It's less lonely. You will uh, be stronger as a team. You know, research shows that, generally speaking, teams are much more likely to succeed than one man or one woman bands. Um, and you know, on those days when you're feeling at your worst, they'll cheer you up. I think it's very important. It's a much more enjoyable journey too. I think with partners. Um, another principle that I learnt, and I think I mentioned it earlier, was. Don't necessarily give up the day job straight away if you've, you've got a great idea. Keep the income coming in if you can by um, uh, uh, working and moonlight or uh, do it part-time even. I think um, this is the right option for a lot of people because uh, you know we've all got bills to pay, rent to pay, etc. Um, funding. Uh, there are obviously lots of different ways you can get capital to build a business. Um, there's uh, obviously debt or equity and many different forms of both. Um, I would say that these days raising early stage money is a lot easier than it used to be. People sometimes feel it's the opposite, but I'm not sure that's true. I think there are many more angel investors. I think there are many more different sources of money. There's many more tax breaks available for early stage backers. And people are much more sophisticated about studying plans and uh, the whole idea of having a startup or two in their portfolio. And uh, <clears throat> so I think you should not um, start from the premise that it's impossible to raise money. If your idea, your plan is good enough, then I suspect one way or another you will cobble together the funds. Uh, what I would say is try and do it for less, whatever it is you're, you're up to. Um, and 
you know, do it on a shoestring because, you know, often the best and most interesting businesses are started on next to nothing. And, um, you know, if, if it's a big grand plan that requires huge capital, then I would recon reconsider, to be frank. Um, <coughs> clearly, banks are not necessarily a good place to go if you've got a start-up, but they never have been. I don't think there's anything new in that. And although I'm as upset as the next person at the idea that banks aren't lending as much as they might be to small and medium-sized enterprises here, I don't actually think they're the cause, if you like, of um, why we don't have more you know, new businesses. I think that ever since I can remember, banks have not been very keen on lending on businesses. What they will do is lend on your personal guarantee. I almost invariably say to people, do not give a personal guarantee to a bank or indeed a landlord. It's the one thing I don't think you should sacrifice. And, you know, there's always another way to find the cash. Uh, because the trouble is, if things don't work out according to plan, and that's so often the case, then you know, they might just call that guarantee and you don't want to lose your home or be ba personally bankrupted. That is not a good idea. Um, I, uh, I talk a lot to entrepreneurs and meet people who are thinking of starting a business and um, what I try and do is, is spread um, enthusiasm and optimism. I think that in the modern age where you've got 24-hour news channels, uh, it's very easy, particularly at moments like this in the cycle, to get a bit downcast and think that uh, things are getting worse and um, we are um, you know, going to be poorer in the future and so forth and so on. I'm not sure I buy this. I think there are many arguments to say the reverse is true. And anyhow, it's always cyclical. So the tide will turn. And, you know, my observations of history, and I'm not a historian, but my father is, are that in the long run, the future always belongs to the optimists. And people, you know, never remember those cynics who said, oh, it can't be done and yours is a silly idea. Um, and almost invariably, if you talk to entrepreneurs about what motivates them, you will find that it's often proving a point. It's, it's defeating the skeptics who were there, the teacher or the older brother or the father or mother or whoever it might have been those who didn't have confidence in their abilities and their, um, you know, their skills. And, um, you know, it's an abiding characteristic, I would say, of every successful entrepreneur, that they are by heart optimistic and believe in the future. And um, I think that's very important. And I find it, I wrote recently in the FT about how distressing it is if you go to places like northern Italy where they have an exceedingly low birth rate. Uh, you know, it seems to me countries that don't, have children, don't believe in the future. Uh, and I think that's very worrying. And I think um, it's partly because people are not handing over the baton and saying, OK, let younger people start having some opportunities. And the world is full of opportunities out there. I think, if anything, things like the internet have exploded the world in terms of ideas. You know. In a way, in smaller countries like Britain, you never really need to come up with anything even vaguely original as a business idea. You just have to look at America and copy what they're doing. It's very straightforward. I'm not joking. And, uh, <coughs> you know, there are, I'm sure you know them, many websites that talk about new businesses, new projects, fresh ideas. Um, and one of the things I find about those that succeed very often is that they're not actually that radical. 
They are modest variations, slight innovations that uh, are often the most successful ones. Um, you don't have to um, you know, reinvent everything to uh, succeed. It's more about execution, really. It's about how do you manage and how do you actually run the project rather than the blueprint in the first place. Um, and as I said, most business plans, uh, the actual eventual enterprise that emerges don't even resemble the outline that's in the document. Um, and, you know, that's just, uh, it shows that pragmatism is at the heart of most business success. I hasten to add, I do believe in the concept of writing a business plan. I think it's very important to put down your thoughts on paper in a coherent fashion, to itemize your budgets, and to talk about your capitalization and work out which markets and customers you're addressing and all those good things. And so I would suggest, even if you're not pitching for finance or talking to a bank about raising money, write yourself a proper business plan. It's a good discipline. Um, I think it, you know, it makes you think through some of the issues and aspects that you might otherwise not have considered. Um, I'm often asked and I often ponder, you know, are entrepreneurs made or born? I think ultimately I come down on the made view. I think that they are not genetically pre-programmed to be entrepreneurs. I think obviously their backgrounds have a huge bearing so that perhaps some entrepreneurs are effectively uh, destined to become self-employed by the age of 15 or something because of uh, the, the family environment they grow up in. But I don't think it's in their DNA. I think that um, what is unquestionably the case is that uh, you know, circumstances have a big impact. And for example, one in four people who start their business uh, is because of redundancy. Um, so that's force of circumstances. There's a very much higher proportion of um, immigrants and the descendants of immigrants who start their own business. And I think this is often because they are unable to get a job because their qualifications aren't necessarily appropriate or of cultural reasons. Um, and I think it's one of the uh, more fantastic things that's happened in Britain in recent decades is that we have had regular waves of immigrants who have started businesses and succeeded and created jobs and grown the economy. Uh, and they've shown the way, really, that um, it is, you know, when I left university in 1983, it was what I called a dinner party test. So if you turn to someone at a posh dinner party and they said, what do you do? You didn't in those days say, so I work for myself, I run a business. That was very, you know, you said you were working in the diplomatic corps or you were at PricewaterhouseCoopers or something like that. Um, and these days it's become very fashionable. I think that's fantastic because I think role models make a hell of a difference. Um, and it really is a, a very changed culture and attitude. All of it good news, I believe. And, and, and that and things like the internet are one of the many reasons why this is actually a great time to be starting a business. You know, people say, oh, it's a, a recession, uh, you know, it's tough to get going, tough to win sale. Of course, of course. But the the fact is that many of the great businesses over the decades were started in the depths of the tough times. You know, Bill Gates started Microsoft in a Albuquerque motel room in 1975 when America was battling desperate conditions of stagflation. Walt Disney started his eponymous animation company in the depths of the Depression in the 1930s, now the biggest entertainment company of any kind in the world. 
and so on and so forth. And there are many, many stories like this. Um, and indeed, in a tiny way, you know, we created Strada immediately following 9-11, when, it, uh, you know, actually things were pretty depressed. Um, in general, you're a small business if you're a startup, and it's your microeconomy that matters. Don't worry about exchange rates or the Eurozone crisis or, you know, the, the BBC News every night telling us that we're all broke. You know, life will continue... And, you know, I used to complain to my colleagues at Channel 4, why is the news always bad? And they said, oh, well, it sells papers, metaphorically. But I'm not convinced that's true. And anyhow, I, you know, don't watch the news. Concentrate on your customers, your business, how you're going to make a margin, what your cash flow is, who, you know, who your staff are, what motivates them. These are the things that will make the difference. And even in a stagnant market, you can take share because most markets actually have weak competitors. And all you have to do is, you know, steal their customers and you'll be okay. Uh, well, that's competition. People who are not competitive should not be in business, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> unless they work for a monopoly like the government. Um, yes, I mean, people also ask me, apart from that made or born thing, you know, what are the characteristics of entrepreneurs? And um, I think I used to believe that the two things that really mattered were self-confidence and self-discipline. Um, and then I read a very interesting article that talked about how in educational matters, actually, the single most important thing that showed which pupils were likely to succeed in the long run was um, not how, many, how they'd done on tests, but character. And it was things like grit that really you know, made the difference. And I think that's damn true of entrepreneurship, too. You know, if you look at um, uh, many, many of the great successes of our time, they uh, didn't get a degree or they dropped out. Uh, so I'm afraid to say for all of those of you studying here at LSE, it isn't necessarily about all your qualifications. I'm sorry about that. Uh, that's not to say you won't succeed too, but I think it is, is at least as much about character rather than um, certificates. And, uh, <coughs> um, you know, it's your ability to win over people, be they employees, suppliers, a banker, a customer. Uh, it's about your attitude to risk. Entrepreneurs are an unusual breed. They're a minority, probably one, less than one in ten in general. And they have this belief, this, uh, their desire for gain is far greater than their fear of loss, whereas the vast majority of the population, the reverse is the truth. And you have to look inside your soul and decide, you know, are you ambitious enough and are you willing to make the sacrifices? Are you willing to have a, 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 a somewhat out-of-kilter work-life balance? What is your approach towards that sort of thing? How much do you hunger for success? And uh, are you willing to put the effort in? These are the questions you have to ask yourself. Um, certainly for me, uh, you know, the journey has been worthwhile. And, um, you know, I always encourage as many people as possible to go for it. It's not without uh, its price in terms of um, your time and possibly family and... The, the, the fact that you might lose savings or that you know you may earn less money than you could working for someone else but um, to me the dream of creating something new that's yours where you get all the credit I think that's worthwhile and the excitement you know on Saturday I went down to a heaving Brighton and there was a brand new patisserie Valerie in Hove it's an incredible feeling when you've seen it and it was a dusty old shop before and then suddenly it's all buzzing and full of customers having a good time that's a great feeling. And 
it doesn't, it's not the same if you're working for someone else. And uh, I would imagine that most of you here have what it takes to start a business if you're not already running one. And, you know, you should go for it. And that is the advice I give to people. And I say, you know, even if it's tough times and even if you've got responsibilities, um, don't be afraid because actually it's not as hard as a lot of people make out. They, I don't know, they try and sort of put people off. Uh, because they're too locked into the sort of world of um, safety and employment. But, you know, jobs for life are history. Final salary pension schemes are history. Working for other people ain't what it was. And, um, uh, you know, I think this generation in particular, who are now graduating and looking for a job, you know, you may have to freelance. You may well have to start your own business. Better than claiming on the dole or watching daytime TV, even if it's on Channel 4. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it's not just for the young, it's for the old. One of the more exciting things, I think, is that I see audiences now, and the diversity is incredible. When I first started in business, women were barely ever interested, or if they were, they never sort of showed it, perhaps, in starting their own business. Now, audiences like this, very high proportion of women, and older people and people from all different backgrounds. And that's one of the great levelers, I think, about entrepreneurship is it's not a class thing. It's not a thing about what sort of privileged background you've come from. It's about who's got the stamina, who's got the ideas, who's got the persuasive personality, and who's got the energy to see the thing, see the thing through. And, um, you know, I, I, I meet... Uh, successful entrepreneurs and they virtually all have extraordinary stories many of them have overcome handicaps and difficulties and have been great adapters which is perhaps why for example in my experience people with dyslexia and stammerers are much higher proportion than normal of them become entrepreneurs and um, you know in a way the easy option is to go and work for a large company or to enter one of the safe professions and uh, have a steady job but don't come to me when you're 56 and you wake up at 4am in the morning and think what you could have done and should have done um, is that half an hour? <laughs> right that's it then questions I just wanted to ask, um, you've obviously been very successful over here in okay. business, Where? but do you learn more from your successes or your failures? I still can't see you, sorry. Um, I'm over here. All oh, right, I got you. <laughs> um, unquestionably from your failures. I think the thing is that your successes delude you into thinking you're a genius, and of course you're not. And luck and being in the right place at the right time probably is as much a bigger factor as anything. Um, and your failures, you have to learn from, because if you don't, you will continue to fail and it will get worse. Um, and I, I'm very encouraged that society's changed and people feel much more com comfortable about talking about their setbacks, or mistakes as I call them. Um, and I don't think this used to happen. I think there was this great pretense that uh, people just succeeded uh, relentlessly and naturally and it's very rarely the case and uh, for example there was an interview with 
a, a woman called Penny Streeter in the FT magazine on Saturday who's built up a very successful healthcare recruitment business. I saw that her first business went bust and she talked about it. That wouldn't have happened in an interview 10 or 20 years ago. And um, she talked about the lessons that that uh, taught her. And I think it's absolutely now accepted that, um, you know, those people who imagine that they can only ever achieve success are either in complete denial or headed for a big fall. Yeah. Do, do I choose or? There's a question microphone right there. Hello? Yeah. Hi there. Thank you very much. Um, it's been really great so far. Um, I just had one question. A lot of uh, entrepreneurs or business people in your position, especially investors, get uh, access to a lot of people wanting to submit business plans and uh, that sort of thing. Has there ever been one that got away? So a business that you said no to that you wish you hadn't? Yes, 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 loads. There was a business called Transform that is the market leader in cosmetic surgery. And... Um, a friend introduced me to the owner and he wanted to take a step back and I could have invested in it when it was quite small. And uh, the deal was more agreed and I got squeamish. I realised that half the business is breast augmentation. And I realised that what they were selling to a lot of their customers was a, a, an operation and the idea that it would make them happy. And of course in a lot of cases it doesn't. And uh, I just sort of got cold feet. The truth is that within three weeks of me passing that deal, um, a private equity firm had done, a, uh, done the deal and they made a huge amount of money over that over the next five years. Uh, and on one level I regretted doing it, but on another I didn't. Yeah. I can tell you about an even better story, one that got away actually. Um, the uh, boss of a business called um, Excite, I think it was. Uh, it was called George Bell, and uh, he turned down Google for three quarters of a million dollars when the two founders thought it was interfering with their studies at Harvard. His business subsequently went bust. Anyhow, carry on. I, I realized I should have lost a tie for the uh, entrepreneur talks. Pretty uncool. Um, thank you for your comments. Uh, I was wondering if we could revisit, I think I heard you make a distinction between businesses that um, make small incremental changes or have different views in the market versus those that are um, radically disruptive. I think a lot of the tech businesses of the last 15 years have, have fallen in that radically disruptive category. Um, do you, could you, first of all, talk a little bit more about the distinction between those two things? And also, um, would you make a distinction between the types of entrepreneurs that should pursue those? in terms of skill set, passion, background, um, etc.? It's a good and difficult question. I mean, my experience has much more been in, um, uh, you know, mainstream, conventional uh, businesses rather than leading-edge technology. And so I suppose that's biased to my view. But my view is that incremental changes, what the Japanese call Kaizen, are... Um, more certain of success than radical breakthroughs and obviously we're aware of the radical breakthroughs but we're probably not aware of the thousands and thousands and thousands of others that attempted to do that and didn't succeed and um, uh, you know luck plays its part and uh, I guess genius in many cases but I suspect that <coughs> if you want to narrow the odds of success then I would encourage you to think in terms of uh, a known demand 
using known technology but slightly better. Uh, and I think for most of us, mere mortals, that's the answer. Obviously, some of us in a generation, one in a generation is Mark Zuckerberg, but he don't come along very often. Thanks. I was wondering, Luke, if you could comment a little bit more about uh, what you said about immigrants and entrepreneurship. Um, I'm an American here in the UK. I'm sure that many other people in this room are also immigrants. And I think in the recent economic and political climate here, there's been really um, some limiting factors that don't allow those of us who may want to start our own companies here to do so. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the entrepreneurship community here in the UK might think about that or how uh, those of us who would like to pursue starting a company in the UK or in Europe might um, might gain some leverage or some voice to Well, to I, I mean, you know, government don't pay any attention to people like me, but if I ever get the chance to nag an MP or a cabinet minister, it's one of the things I bang on about, along with things like employment legislation, is that they have got to, especially for entrepreneurs and also people with rare technical skills, they have got to permit entrepreneurs to come and live here. If you look at Silicon Valley, you know, a huge proportion of its entire success is founded on immigrants from overseas. I've seen statistics that suggest over a third of the big successes there have been founded by immigrants. Uh, coming there and, you know, that brain power being uh, leveraged in, in, you know, the vast open markets of America to great success. And here we have benefited fantastically from the entrepreneurship of many different waves of immigrants over the decades and centuries. And arguably, it's one of the reasons why, particularly as a merchant city, London over the centuries has been so fantastically successful is because, generally speaking, by the stands of many other European countries, we have actually been quite open to immigrants coming here and basing their businesses here. And if we become more closed, if we uh, become more restrictive in terms of allowing people to settle and work and start businesses and employ people and create jobs, then you know we will all be the losers. And this sort of uh, narrow-minded prejudice is um, you know, not only morally reprehensible, but it's uh, economic suicide. So I do hope the politicians don't pander to the uh, you know, minority, I'm sure, who clamor for restrictions on um, you know, immigration in a very sort of, you um, know, cack-handed way and realise that there's a great deal of talent and we must become or remain a talent magnet. You know, we're very fortunate with our location and our language and the fact that London is a world city and we need to take advantage of this. And I'm glad to say that people like, for example, Boris Johnson, I think, is a promoter of this, he's the mayor here, and the more the better. And, you know, it's not just about... The, the, the rules and the laws, but it's also about the attitude and the culture. And we need to be open and attract the skills and talent and make it possible for people who, for example, come and study here to stay. And it's because of that relationship with Stanford and so forth in California that Silicon Valley has become the incredible gold mine that it's been. And if we lose that here, then we are fools. Okay. I'd like to take something back here, please. <coughs> Um, hi. So, as a budding entrepreneur, and I'm sure there are other students in, in the audience who are budding entrepreneurs, 
like you mentioned, you can't really study entrepreneurship and become an entrepreneur. You studied medicine, you're you know, a really successful entrepreneur. What advice would you give budding entrepreneurs who have an idea, who are keen to start something, you know, where do they go? It's all about networking, that's what people are saying, but what advice could you give someone who's a budding entrepreneur? Well, it isn't all about networking, I think that helps. Um, there are many more ways via the internet that you can hook up with other entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs. Um, it, depending on if you are still studying, whether there are other students with you. I, I said to some people earlier that actually one of the great things I think a course like an MBA or an MSc in business can give you is the opportunity to meet a business partner. I think you should seriously consider if you're starting out the idea of uh, partnering up with someone else. Um, <clears throat> I think you should also look at the possibility of finding a mentor somehow or other who can advise you and perhaps introduce contacts. Um, there are the odd book you could buy that would give you some advice. Um, <coughs> there are an infinite number of websites. Um, there's a very good column on a Wednesday in the FT. Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there and you, you know, one of it is about how resourceful you are. You know, networking's a bit vague and it isn't all just about meeting the right person and suddenly you're rich. It's uh, much more hard work than that. But I do think that chance plays its part and the more you get out there and mingle, the more likely it is that you will meet customers, partners and, and your ideas can flourish. Hi, I wanted to ask, uh, why is it that you um, left those businesses um, like Pizza Express when they were well, kind of successful. Well, great mistake, wasn't it? Seems like it. I mean, the truth is that I have almost certainly <laughs> sold most of the business, most of the most successful businesses I've been involved with too early, and um, you know, yeah, I guess I, I regret that. But um, I suppose I'm an impetuous fellow, and I mean, the truth is that. Circumstances intrude. For example, in Strada, we actually sold because my two partners in the business, uh, you know, they had mortgages to pay off. One of them wanted to buy a little boat. And I felt it was only fair on them. They hadn't really made a capital gain. You know, it would have been selfish for me to say, no, we're not selling. Um, but yeah, sure, I sold too early and I, I regret that. Oh, well. Kind of everything. Okay. Um, why don't we take the woman in the white here in the middle? Hi, thanks for your presentation. Um, two quick questions. One is, have you thought about getting involved in the new green economy and sustainable and social enterprises? And two is, have you thought about joining or setting up your own version of Dragon's Den or The Apprentice? Well, let's deal with the latter first. <laughs> um, net, I just approve of The Apprentice and Dragon's Den because I think they do still introduce a lot of people to the idea of things like venture capital and starting your own business. However, they are a pantomime, they're not real business, and they do give false impressions that, you know, everyone in business is a reptile and all the rest of it. Uh, and so, you know, they're pure entertainment, and you do meet people who, who get confused between that and real life, which is a shame. Uh, in terms of the first question, um, I haven't got involved in 
green or clean tech. Yes, I have actually. Sorry, I've got a business that supplies, um, you know, chargers for electric cars. Who knows how many electric cars are on the UK? Two thousand out of twenty-five million odd. So it's a, an early stage business, I'd say. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so I've got my toe in that one. In terms of social enterprises, I think they're great. The more the better. I, I've got involved in various charities that are sort of not dissimilar to social enterprise in a way. Um, the Royal Society of Arts and a, a theatre charity called Stage One. That They are charities, but they do sort of enterprising work, if you like. Um, but I, I class social enterprises and for-profit as, as a continuum. And for some people, it may be a social enterprise is more suitable. I still think that's fantastic. It's still all about innovation, and it's about enterprise, and it's about making something happen, and, and, and you know, the freedom and independence of having your own organization rather than being a cog in someone else's wheel. Yeah. Uh, why don't we take the gentleman back here? <clears throat> Do you have any tips on how to test your business idea? in terms of being financially viable? Well, it depends totally on what the specific idea is. But what I would say is that the internet does allow you to um, fail fast and cheaply in a way that was inconceivable before. And so if it's a digital business or anything like that, then clearly you, know, you can build and trial a website very cheaply and quickly that um, wouldn't have been possible in the past. Um, I, I like the way that in the restaurant business, for example, um, what's happened in recent times is that people are trialling new cuisines or new concepts and it might be, you know, a particular sort of um, hot dog or a particular type of um, donut or something through food trucks and pop-up restaurants. And, you know, they involve a fraction of the capital, probably 5% of the capital that would be required to start a full-blown restaurant. Very little of the planning regulations and restrictions. And they are like I say, a, a, a cheap bet. And I think that is a great principle that all those most innovative companies that like to experiment and, and find out new ways of doing things employ as a business technique. And um, I'm encouraging all the companies I'm involved with to do more of that in terms of product innovation, service innovation. Lots of small tests uh, fail quick, fail cheaply. And um, <coughs> I think it's entirely dependent on the industry you're involved with. But the more you can do that, the better, certainly. Yeah, um, I'll take the gentleman in the green shirt there. Uh, well, looks green and gray. <laughs> Hi. Um, loved your optimistic message. But just a quick question. that Obviously, a successful entrepreneur builds something bigger than themselves. Uh, and can pass it over and have people working for them. Um, so is it, I mean, how do you see, you know, or not everyone can be an entrepreneur, basically. Sorry, how? Not everyone can be an entrepreneur. No, but I think a lot more people can than are. I don't see why not. Um, you know, the fact is that some economies, Thailand, I believe, is one example, have very high proportion of people working for themselves. Probably self-employed freelancers, not running companies with lots of staff. Um, but I think that, you know, as the public sector sheds jobs inevitably because of economic circumstances, so the private sector's got to take up the slack. And, uh, you know, most research suggests that big companies aren't 
producing new jobs in the private sector. So it's got to be the startups, the early stage companies. And um, that's where the entrepreneurs come in. And like, I think extra entrepreneurs, it's not zero sum. The more entrepreneurs there are, the more opportunities there are. And I, I fundamentally believe there is an infinite number of opportunities. There are endless numbers of problems that need solving. And it's for the entrepreneurs of the world to find solutions and make a turn on that. Uh, we'll take the woman, I think it is, here on the very front row. Yes. Mr. Johnson, hello. Um, you briefly touched on the topic of funding, and you said, I don't recommend you to go to the banks if you want to raise money. Uh, can you elaborate more on that? I mean, for example, if I don't oh, do go try to the bank, what other option do I have? I mean, I go to private equity. I think you've got to try anything and everything. In my book, I talk about how Howard Schultz, when in the early days at Starbucks, uh, he had, I think, three coffee shops, and uh, he needed to raise a million bucks or so. He did 245 presentations to prospective investors to raise the money. And, you know, he was clearly calling on every third person in Seattle. And you just got to, wherever it takes you and whatever, whatever's necessary. And in a way, I think, can you raise the money is not a bad test of do you have the wherewithal and the stamina to build a business and run a business. And A, it might be that they're telling you something if you can't raise the money. Maybe it isn't a good idea. But B, it's also about have you the energy and the persistence to do it. Gentleman back here in blue shirt. Taking the question of funding a step further, obviously classically at the moment we can start with family and friends through to venture capitalists, angels, private equity. Do you believe there may be any newer, more innovative forms of funding available in the future? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if online crowdsourcing of equity became you know, more common and, and perfected. Uh, and it seems to me that it might make sense. It's to do with things like regulation. I'd like to see a revival of um, the small company new issue market, i.e. AIM or even sub-AIM, you know, plus markets, things like that. They've been pretty moribund for some years, and I think that's uh, a tragedy because, you know, we need a thriving domestic market of a small amounts of capital for, you know, growing young companies. Um, I, you know, there are other different forms of financing like factoring and leasing that might come into play depending on the sort of business you're running. Uh, I have to admit, I've, one of the reasons I've had a bias towards retail and restaurants and things like this is these are cash businesses and quite often, you know, they have negative working capital. So actually, if you get enough credit from your suppliers, uh, you can do it on no capital. Um, and those businesses inevitably are easier to start and quite attractive from that perspective. Um, gentleman here. Um, hi, Luke. Um, I really enjoyed that, so thank you. Um, my question is, um, with uh, emerging economies, um, what role do they uh, play for you as, a, as an entrepreneur? Well, I've been very cowardly in that I've done virtually all the business I do here because it's what I know and it's easy and I'm lazy. Um, and I wish in a way that, you know, I'd been more adventurous uh, and travelled more and done business abroad more. I think for you, who are mostly younger than me, or a lot of you are, that's what you've got to do. You know, the world is much more global now. The opportunities 
uh, are to either locate businesses there or import from there or export to there or uh, one way or another make your businesses more international than mine have been and I think it's, it's you know, been a great failing of mine um, and <clears throat> I think particularly those of you who are from or your descendants are from other parts of the world you've got to exploit those connections and those skills and languages and other resources to you know find opportunities of the interplay between different nations um, and I think you know you would be foolish not to frankly in your circumstances we have a second row here in the front of the balcony hi hi um, yeah, I was just wondering what it was that um, made you, against all financial advice, decide to take up Patisserie Valerie. Um, what was it that made you think that would be a good idea? Um, I thought it had great heritage. It had been around since 1926. I thought that uh, the three brothers who owned it then, one of whom is, is a partner of mine now, he stayed, the other two left, they were squabbling all the time, and so it wasn't a well-run business. Um, and I thought it had a unique formula and something different. And uh, the loyalty its customers exhibited uh, made me believe it should be making money. But I'll be frank, I couldn't do a P&L that showed that it was profitable in the early days, but I knew instinctively that it ought to be. And I couldn't tell you what the mix of business should be and what the margins. I, I, it was pure feel based on having been in the food and drink business for 20-odd years. Um, I wouldn't have dared do it, I think, much before then, but uh, it was that gut instinct that drove me to do it. And it's difficult to explain that. I do, I, it's funny, you know, you can analyse yourself to death. When we bought Pizza Express, we got PricewaterhouseCoopers to do a long-form due diligence report, and they, this is in 92, they um, conclusively showed that um, the largest restaurant had ever opened, which is Golden Cross in Oxford, um, which had cost a million and a half pounds and almost broken the back of the business in the depths of recession and led it into loss, would never make a profit. And we turned that branch round within six weeks. It was the most profitable branch in the chain. So don't always listen to the accountants slavishly. <clears throat> Why don't we take a gentleman in the white shirt here? Thank you. Uh, you already mentioned um, negative uh, working capital in the restaurant business, but I wanted to ask, what is it that keeps attracting you and you keep going back to the restaurant business? Obviously, 20 years ago, when you started with Pizza Express, things were very different. They were not as competitive as they are today. Margins, I would imagine, were probably high, um, higher than they are today. Why do you keep going back? What is it in the restaurant business that keeps attracting you? Well, um, it's probably cowardice because, you know, more adventurous things are you know, too difficult for me. Uh, it's because I get to see deals. I'm credible in that space. Um, it's, it's what I'm familiar with. And, you know, I guess we all end up playing to our strengths. Also, I do believe in domain knowledge. I think that if you know an industry well and you understand the economic structure and you can analyze an opportunity, um, that's a big advantage. Whereas if you go outside your sphere of competence, the risk is you get it wrong, you misjudge it, and you don't realize that you know, you're being misled and that there are problems that you haven't seen. Um, and it's not, as I said, simply about the financial due diligence. There's a lot more to it than that always. And so you know, having made 
plenty of mistakes in other sectors. I've not got it wrong too often in the restaurant sector, so I guess I, I'm hopeful that my chances of success are higher. But you're right. Margins are lower, returns are lower than they used to be. It's a lot more competitive. It's tough out there, but it's tough everywhere. I think we're going to have to end now because now we've had a half an hour of the questions also. And I, I am sorry because there's still many people with unanswered questions and perhaps at a later point in time we'll get an opportunity to ask those. And I want to thank again Luke very, very much for all the time he's <laughs>